Okay. Right. Anyway, um, let's uh, let's be serious. So for the for the grown-ups, I was I'm going to ask about problems that we think God ought to be solving. Why does a God of love allow? Why does a God of love allow me to miss my bus? It's a rather trivial thing, isn't it? We might say, why does God allow that? Why does God allow me not to get paid as much as other people? That seems very unfair. Why does God allow that? Or why does God allow uh, me not to have the ox, donkey, house, wife, husband, family, education, looks, gifts that my neighbor has? That is from a certain list of things. Anybody know what that certain list of things is? There's ten of them. The Ten Commandments, the last one says, if God doesn't give you the same ox, donkey, house, wife, husband, etc. as your neighbor, you're not to be jealous of them because God gives you what you want. Anyway, but you might say, why does God give me something different? Then you might say, well, actually, let's not make it trivial. Let's make, you know, climate change. Why doesn't, why does God, uh, why doesn't God solve that problem? Or the friends in Sri Lanka were uh, talking about their situation of the government, which they say is a corrupt government. Why does God allow injustice, corrupt governments, things like that? Why doesn't God just sort out our messed up world? It's a, big question. Why does God allow things to go wrong? Can he do anything about any of these? Will he do anything about any of these? How will he do anything about any of these? How will God sort out our messed up world? Now, boys and girls, I'm just going to backtrack now. Can you help us with this map? So we had a map and we were looking for Jerusalem. Can anybody remember which of those dots is Jerusalem? Which of those places is Jerusalem? I'll give, you a, I'll give you a start. Is that one there? Okay, that's Jerusalem. So that's the center of the things that God did. Um, and that was the home for Isaiah. And then Judah. Can anybody remember this from last week? Yeah, go on then. Is it the witch? Is it that one? It isn't actually, it's that one. So Judah is the the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is capital. And then Israel is the northern kingdom, just there. And then last time we were looking at a threat from the uh, kingdoms even further north there. And that's what we were looking at last time, and uh, the the people of God were threatened. They thought there's a real problem here. Uh, That was a threat. Now, Egypt. um, Anybody like to say where Egypt is? It's the yellow one. Yeah, okay, that's well done. Yep. It's the yellow one. That's Egypt. (laughs) Just pausing to welcome our summer. We can can begin now. Let's go. Um, And... uh, Assyria was a real big problem, and I'm not quite sure which of these was Assyria when I drew them. Let's assume it was that one. Uh, And that is a real big threat to Jerusalem. And they came and invaded the north and took away everybody from the north but left the south. Uh, um, They just didn't manage to defeat the south. But then later, the Babylonians 
came and just wiped out everything and took the people as slaves back to Babylon. So that that's a little bit of the history, and you need to remember that a little bit because that was the problem that God was solving for those people. And that's uh, problems for God to solve. In the, in the time of Isaiah, to sort out his messed up people because his people weren't trusting him. Uh, and to make the failed city into the faithful city. And at the time we're reading of now, the city had actually... Oh, no, I can't give you that map because it's not there. Uh, the city had been destroyed and the people had been taken into exile. The people were in chains in Babylon, far across the desert. And the question for them, can God solve this? Is Babylon too strong for the Lord? Babylon has defeated Jerusalem, taken away the people. Can God do anything about that? Or is that Babylon too strong for the Lord? One of the other things that the Lord has said he would do was sort out not just his own people, but the nations, all the nations too. And how on earth can God do that? How can he sort out the messed up nations? As he said, all the nations will flow to the Lord's house. How will he do that? So just a reminder that the God, that the Assyrians had defeated the north, sorry, the Assyrians had devastated the north, and the Babylonians have now taken the people from the south into exile. That's the specific problem that they're facing. And the same question, can God sort this out? Will he sort it out? And how will he sort it out? Okay, now boys and girls, you see those pictures in the background there? Can you spot any differences between them? They're actually all the same. I just copied them. They, they, there's three of them, but they, they, they're, as far as I can see, they're identical. I'm going to be introducing you to how God solved the problems for his people and how he will solve the problems for the world by his servants. So what we're going to look at this morning is, first of all, God versus idols, and then I'm going to introduce you to these servants. There's the worm servant, the victorious servant, and the ideal servant. And if you like, one, two, three, one, two, three, servants. And at first sight, these servants look just like all the same. When you look more closely to these servants, different. Have you ever looked in a shop window where you've got several panes of glass and there's three reflections of you? Have you done that? You think, oh, is that me or is that or is that me? And these servants are a little bit like that. A funny reflection, like a reflection in a thick glass window. How many people here know Katie and Mitchie? Katie and Mitchie, okay. And what's special about Katie and Mitchie regarding each other. They're twins. How many people here have mixed up Katie and Mitchie? Okay. Right. Well, the, these servants are a little bit like that, a little bit like twins or, or, or triplets. But when you look more closely, you can see the differences between them. So first of all, uh, before we get to these three servants, I want to look at one of these things. Uh, got a reference for it. 
41, 7 to 10. So we're actually going to look at some bits of the Bible and put them together, sort of one after another. So if, you, if you've got a Bible that you can look at, boys and girls, or somebody that you can look across to help you, and then I'll ask you some questions about this. So this is God versus idols. An idol, I-D-O-L, is a made-up God. And you can make them up from metal or wood or, in your mind, mental. It can be a mental image or a metal image. And 41, 7 to 10, says this. Uh, let me see if I've got the right reference. Oh, yes, that's right, 41, 7 to 10. Listen to this. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith who smooths with the hammer and spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welder, it is good. And he nails down the idol so that it will not topple. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my family, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its furthest corners I called you, and I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a contrast there between what God says to people who are trusting in him and the people who are trusting in idols. So there's an idol. I've tried to draw one. It's supposed to be an idol sitting on the ground there. There's some things to prop it up. And it said something about the nails. He says of the welding, it is good. He nails down the idol so that it will not topple. Now, boys and girls, what's the point about the nails? What is it saying about these nails? Yeah. So you, you, you're saying, do this first sentence again. They nail it down so that it won't fall over. Yeah. And you had another sentence? Yeah, but that, that's the point. Yeah. They nail it down so that it won't fall. So I think that's absolutely right. A bit of round of applause for that. Well done. So this idol, which they're looking to for help and strength, if they don't nail it down properly, it will fall over. Which is pathetic, really, isn't it? Because if, you, if you're worshipping an idol and saying, oh, idol, help me, strengthen me, and you have to actually nail the idol down so it doesn't fall over, it's, it's pretty pathetic. God says he's not like that. Now, here's a question. Are idols inside this world or outside it? Are idols inside this world or outside it? Inside it. How do we know they're inside it? What things did, was, were mentioned that were very definitely inside this world? 
they're not God. Is that what you said? They're not God. Yeah, they're not God. Yeah, absolutely. They're, um, they're not God who made everything. They're part of what's been made. So, round of applause for that. Well done. So, I'm just going to just push this again. What was there in the text that is definitely inside this world that, that it says about the idols? So one thing is nails, because nails are part of this world. Anything else? Wood and metal. They're all part of this world, aren't they? The wood and the metal. The idols are inside. Oh, she gets around the applause as well. Yeah, okay. Let's look at something else about the idols. So I've now come to 42 verses 8 and 9. Now listen to this one, boys and girls. This is the Lord speaking again, talking about idols. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Now what can God do that idols can't do? From that text. See, the former things have taken place, new things I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. What's that? Good. Well done. That's very good theology. Yes. The idols, because they're part of this world, can only think, well, they don't even think, do they? It's all limited by this world, by the causes and effects in this world. But God can say, I'm going to tell you something that you could never guess from this within this world. I can do things from outside and tell you from outside. Before these things happen, I'll tell them to you. So that's something that only God can do. And did you notice how he says that he's jealous about something? What does he say he's jealous about, boys and girls? Use the word jealous. He doesn't use the word jealous, but it's that's what it means. Where God says, "I will not something. Thank you. I will not give my glory to another." Well done. Yeah. So God says, "Look, I'm in charge of the world. I say what's going to happen. Don't ask those idols. They don't know a thing about it. Don't give my glory to them." I won't have that. God says, I don't give my glory to anybody else. I'm in charge. I'm the Lord. You worship me. How ridiculous to be propping up idols and looking to them. You see what I mean? It's very strongly put. Let's look at 44, 9 to 21. 44, 9 to 21. And this is really quite sharp. So I'll read this, boys and girls. This is about idols. 9 to 21. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. And those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool 
and works it with the poles. He shapes an idol with hands. And he forges it with the might of his arm. When he gets hungry and loses his strength and drinks no water and goes to have a cup of coffee because he's grown fat. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker, and he roughs it out with chisels and marks it out with compasses, and he shapes it in the form of a man, of a man, and where is that man? But it may dwell in a shrine, and he cuts down cedars, or perhaps a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest and planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. And he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. And half the wood he burns in the fire, and over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. And he warms himself and says, By warmth I see the fire. And with the rest he makes a god, his idol. And he bows down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. Hey. Know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. Their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, hmm, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make an idol, a detestable thing, from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. The deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have slept, swept away your offences like a cloud. Your sins like a morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. See, God is contrasting the idols which are both stupid and pathetic with God in his his powerfulness. So, boys and girls, does God say idols are okay, really? So, just um, want to run out of time, which I probably will, but uh, let me just have a quick Just going to remind us of verse four, chapter forty-five, verse eighteen. For this is what the Lord says: He who created the heavens, He is God. He fashioned and made the earth. He founded it. There's huge difference that idols have to be made by clever people, but God made everything, and that's a huge difference. And the Lord God is not inside this world, but outside it. And I was going to ask whether Jesus is an idol. Usually the answer is Jesus. So I was like, is idol? Is it who is an idol? What do you think? He is the representation of God, and he is what idols pretend to be. But Jesus is it really? He is the real expression. Of God. Yeah, it was like the visible version of God. 
people of God make this happen. The Lord is the creator God. He really is great. He really does work. He really does control events. That's who God is. Um, and we'll stop and sing a song. We're going to sing uh, in praise number 115. Not to us be glory given, but to him who reigns above. And I do stuff using my servants. So let me introduce you to the worm servant. Uh, and this is Israel. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, um, but she didn't do that. She actually was even worse than the Gentiles, became like them instead of them becoming like her. So please can we read Isaiah 40? Let me see if I've got the right against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I will make you into a threshing sledge new and sharp with many teeth. You will crush the mountains and thresh them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Wow! That's right, it's a worm. Well done. Yeah. So this servant is like a worm. Why do you think he says he's like a worm? What's what's what, what's noticeable about a worm? How many of you have ever been attacked by a worm? Anybody? Okay. What what what, what do you think? Uh, I've got a. I think I've got it like this. There's a worm. Uh, w something something K. Worms are W something something K. What do you think? Well done! Yeah, weak. Yeah. So this is the worm servant. The worm servant is weak. And what sort of thing will God make the worm servant into? Did you notice? You might may get some help from mum and dad. Just make sure they're awake. And you can ask them, what will God make the worm servant into? A threshing sledge. I remember looking at what a threshing sledge is. I'm not absolutely sure. I think it's something that sort of crushes the harvest and squashes it to pieces in a strong sort of way. Anyway, something strong. Oh dear, I've given you the answer already. Okay. Let's look at 40. Well done on that. Thank you. 42 verse 18. This is the worm servant. 
And now I'm, I'm in 42, verse 18, where it says, Hear you, deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind like my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You've seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. Please the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are trapped in pits, hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have become mute with no one to save a single one. So, they're not in a very good place. What problems did they have? What did it say about the worm servant? What happened to the worm servant? Verse 22. To the worm servant. Trapped in pits. Yes, trapped in pits. Uh, and uh, what else does it say? Or hidden away in. Yeah, this is the worm servant. Uh, like a, a prisoner, like somebody trapped. Where are they? Well, they're in Babylon. Remember, these are the people that got taken away to Babylon, and there they are. Wait a minute, it's just I'm getting ahead of myself. There they are in Babylon. Babylon, where they have the Tower of Babel, and where they have the waters of Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, we 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 uh, sat and wept. We hung our hearts from the willows, and there they are. There's the worm servant, trapped in chains over there in Babylon, far away from God, imprisoned, blind, deaf. And I'm going to say, the answer is usually Jesus, two questions. Um, is this Jesus? My wife says no. Can you think of boys and girls, is this Jesus? You think? You think no. Okay. Think no. But I wonder whether Jesus ever became like this. Was Jesus ever treated like a criminal? Was Jesus ever put in a position of weakness? Was Jesus ever sort of put somewhere where he couldn't get away? What do you think? When he was on the cross, what were you going to say? Yeah, okay. The worm servant isn't Jesus, but Jesus became like this servant. And this servant is like us, actually. This is without God. That's what we are. Deaf. Blind. Imprisoned. Stuck. Far away from God. That's what it's like to be somebody who is not a Christian. And that's what these people are like. They're not being what God wanted them to be. And can they ever be changed? That's the thing. 
weak, imprisoned, distant from God, slaves and hopeless. Right, I'm going to go on to the next servant, the victorious servant. And this servant is a little bit shocking. We might not have time to do all the servants this morning, so it'll give you something to look forward to over the summer holidays. But this servant is a bit shocking. So boys and girls, help me with this one. This one is in 41, 2 to 4. This is a servant that God is says, I'm going to sort this out. I'll get this servant um, to work. So he says this, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him. He subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not travelled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am. So here is this servant. And uh, boys and girls, is this servant defeated? What does it say about the, the servant? He's not defeated. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank you. He's not defeated. He's victorious. And who makes him do this? Who makes him so strong that he's not defeated? God does. Thank you. Absolutely right. Two good answers. And God says, look, I'm doing this. I, the Lord, with the first, I'm the first and the last. I'm in charge of everything. I can do this from the outside. I don't have to get anybody's permission. I can make this happen. And I'm going to make this king uh, so um, victorious. And this king is actually, this king is uh, King Cyrus, uh, his personal history. He wasn't a Babylonian king, but he was in the place that um, it was the kingdom, the empire that replaced the Babylonians. The Medes and Persians took over over the empire. And you know what Cyrus did? He sent the exiles home, and they've been stuck in prison. They were stuck in exile for seventy years, and you think, how will they ever get home? And God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to raise up King Cyrus, and I'm going to put it in his head. You know what he'll do. He'll send those people home. And that's exactly what he did. Now, he did it for other nations as well. You know, there's a policy that he had. But God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make this happen. I'll tell you about it before it ever happens. And none of the idols have even guessed this. I'm going to tell you before it happens, because I'm the first and the last this happen. And that's King Cyrus. He sets the prisoners free. He sets the prisoners free. Let's just look at one more thing. Probably we should stop in a minute. 45 verses 4 to 6. This is King Cyrus again. <clears throat> 45 verses 4 to 6. 
God says, I summon you by name and give you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light, I create the darkness, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. is, does Cyrus know that God is doing this? Verse 4. Does Cyrus know that God is doing this? Might be hidden in the word that was used there. It says, you have not acknowledged me. Or you could translate it, you do not know me. So I'm asking the question, do you think Cyrus knew what was going on? Do you think Cyrus prayed every day to the Lord and asked for, for guidance? No. You don't know me, says the Lord. You have not acknowledged me, but I've raised you up. And I will make sure that you won't set my people free. And people could say, well, that can't be right. God can't use him. He doesn't even pray. He's not even, not even a Christian. He's certainly not even a Jew. And God says, well, don't complain. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, verse 9. You can't, you can't complain about what I do, but it's a weird thing, a strange thing. If I'm going to use this king who has no idea about the Bible, no idea about me, he's going to do exactly what I want him to do. He's going to set my people free. Is it, is it okay for God to do this? And God says, look, I'll do anything I want. I'm the creator of the ends of the earth. The kings are in my hands. I can raise up King Cyrus. I can put him down. I can raise up Donald Trump. I can raise up Joe Biden. I can put them down. I can raise up Boris Johnson. I can put him down. I can raise up Man Hancock. I can put him down. I can do anything I want. I can raise up Vladimir Putin. I can put him down. Do anything I want with any of these kings. Don't complain to me because I'm in charge. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. And God says, this is me. This is what I can. And I'm just going to ask you this question, because usually the answer is Jesus. So the victorious king, boys and girls, is this Jesus? The victorious king, is it Jesus? What do you think? You think yes. Why do you think yes? Jesus control everything. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well done. Is this Jesus? So one answer is yes. There's another answer, no. Anybody like to answer no and say no? Well, I'm going to say it will be true. I'm sorry you're having this sort of firework display behind me all the time. Um, it didn't, really, didn't matter too much, is it? Um, Jesus knew God, didn't he? 
be true to say that Jesus didn't make it. King Cyrus didn't make it. But it would be true to say Jesus sets the prisoners free. Cyrus set the prisoners free. So Cyrus is a sort of version of Jesus, but not the full version. He doesn't do the whole thing. He's sort of like Jesus, but not Jesus actually. Um, let's see what I put on the screen. He's like the king who sets the prisoners free. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the powerless flee. His blood avails for me. That's Jesus, isn't it? He does that. And the last servant was the ideal servant. <coughs> I think I'll just have to do this very quickly because of the time. This is in chapter 42. And this is what Ray read to us. And this servant says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands put their hope. And just reading from that, boys and girls, if you're still with me, do you think God finds any fault with this servant? Is there any problems with this servant? Because the worm servant was blind and deaf, and the victorious servant didn't know God, but this servant... Right at the beginning, does God find any fault with this servant? Forty-two verse one. No. Which which bit of text makes you say no? Okay, that's a good thing. You'll bring justice to the nations. Excellent. Yeah, well done. Thank you for that. Yeah, you get a little ripple there. And Bethany was going to say? In whom I delight. And that's the bit I was thinking of. Well done. Yes. And this, this servant is absolutely bruised. And God says, this servant is the, is the real thing. He is a brilliant servant. There's no problem with him. Uh, he is my chosen one in whom I delight. And when Jesus came on the scene, when he was baptized, there was a voice from heaven saying, this is, this is the one in whom my soul delights. This is Jesus. It really is Jesus. I'm just going to flick through the rest because I think I've um, trespassed on your patience enough. He does all sorts of good things. He brings justice uh, and he brings the nations and God, the creator, says, I'm going to do this. This is verse 5. God, the Lord, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out. I'm calling you. I'm behind all this. And in verse 7, he opens the eyes that are blind. He sets free the captives from prison. He releases from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. He says, I don't give my glory to another one. I'm going to do this. This servant will sort everything out. He will raise up my people. He will bring in the Gentiles. He'll do the whole thing. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus. He is the one who really 
sorts everything out. And uh, I'll just go on quickly. Can God solve the problems of the world? Will he solve the problems of the world? How will he solve the problems of the world? He sorts out his messed up people. He takes this ideal servant who, we haven't got time to go through this, but the ideal servant becomes like the worm servant in order to do the work of the victorious servant and set his people free. Servants. And is Babylon too strong for the Lord? Absolutely not. God can bring people back from Babylon. He sets the prisoners free and he uses his victorious servant to do it. Can he sort out the messed up nations? Yes, because the ideal servant will raise up the nations. And um, we're invited to say, this is God. This is what he does. This is how he does it. He does amazing things in his awesomeness and powerfulness. And he uses his servant to do it. He, he takes this servant, this Jesus, born as a baby, in weakness, dying on the cross. And he says, this is my servant. This is the one in whom my soul delights. This is the one I'm upholding. This is the one through whom I will solve everything for everybody who turns to him. And I just want to commend to you this Jesus. Don't be too worried about what's going on behind. Um, he does it all via his servant. The great creator God has set himself the task of solving the big problems for all humanity. And his almightiness is focused into his servant. And this is the great point of the New Testament, which says, Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the one through whom God redeems. Jesus is that servant. And we think of the magnitude of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus. And I leave you with this thought, is he magnificent and wonderful for you? Is he the one whose service you have received? Has he redeemed you? Is he the center of your life? Do you see in him the be-all and end-all? The best thing that's ever happened to you. All your hope and all your trust is rested in this Jesus. Is that the case for you? Because that's what God wants. That's what the Almighty God says. Believe in Him. About selling, about the merchant looking for pearls, and he found the best pearl that he could possibly imagine. And he said, "That is so great! I need to sell everything else to get that pearl." And I want to say, Jesus is so great that we ought to be able to say. Just get rid of everything else in order to have him. Nothing is, nothing should interfere with my having Jesus as the center of my life.